I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, money-back guarantees are a great thing. I, uh, we've got some French doors that go out onto our deck, and, and not too long ago I noticed that the vinyl was peeling back on the outside and water was coming into the wood, and, and I was worried about what might happen. And so I found an 800 number, and I called the manufacturer, and they sent out a representative, and I expected him to propose a plan to patch it up, you know, maybe super glue. He said, you know what? These French doors are guaranteed, so we're going to replace them. So they came and put brand new French doors in my house. What a deal. But unfortunately, sometimes guarantees prove to be worthless. Have you ever had a guarantee that didn't prove to be a guarantee? I remember several years ago when I was coming back from Africa, I, I got to Newark, and I had a flight from Newark to St. Louis, and they let me know that my flight had been canceled. Well, I had a reservation, I had a ticket, I had a seat assignment on a flight that no longer existed. That's not much of a guarantee. This week, Tempa and Lindsay and I are planning to go down for a few days to Memphis, and I, I was on the internet the other day making reservations, and I reserved the motel room. Underneath it, it had a place for preferences. You know, you, you say, well, I want two beds, I want, you know, non-smoking, I want handicapped, I want all these things. And I got through picking my preferences, and then I noticed in the fine print underneath it said, there is no guarantee that you'll get your preferences. So I don't know why they were asking me. You know, we'll, we'll probably get down there and have a broom closet with three cots. There are not many sure guarantees in life. I got a hot water bottle this week. I noticed on the box it says, 10-year limited warranty. Now, I'm not even sure what that means. But I can assure you that I'm not going to hang on to my hot water bottle warranty. But I'll tell you something else. There is one thing that you had better be sure that you have a guarantee for. And that is your eternal destiny. You know, we may show up in Memphis and hear those exasperating words, I'm sorry, we don't have a reservation for you. When did you make it? That's an unfortunate situation when it happens for a weekend. But you don't want that to happen for eternity. You don't want to get to the pearly gates and hear you don't have a reservation. If there is anything in life you want to be sure that you have a guarantee for, it's your salvation. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to know in verse 22 of chapter 7 that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now that word covenant means contract or agreement. It was often used of a last will and testament. It describes the agreement between God and man. And a better covenant implies that there was a worser covenant. There was a covenant that was put aside, and that was the law. And the guarantee of the old covenant was man. It was dependent on Israel's ability to keep the law. The old covenant said, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And that guarantee lasted about 30 seconds. It didn't even last the amount of time that it took for Moses to get down from the mountain with the tablets. You see, the Old Covenant was based on law. The New Covenant is based on grace. The Old Covenant said do. The New Covenant says done. The Old Covenant was conditional. The New Covenant is unconditional. And the guarantee of the New Covenant is not us. It is Jesus. That word guarantee means a surety. Remember when 
Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt and his brothers came down to Egypt for food and they didn't know that, that Joseph was the prime minister, but he insisted that they come back again and next time they come that they bring their youngest brother, Benjamin. So he went back, or they went back to their father and in Genesis 43.8, Judah said to his father, send the lad with me and I myself will be surety for him. And later when Joseph's silver cup was found in Benjamin's bag of grain, Judah stepped up in Genesis 42.32. And this is what he said, Your servant became surety for the lad. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. He was willing to take the punishment in order to allow his brother to go home. It coincides with what Paul said to Philemon in verse 18 of that short letter. He said, If Onesimus has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. You see, Jesus is the surety of the new covenant. He says, in essence, to the Father, however they have wronged you, whatever they owe you, charge that to my account. So you see, our covenant with God can never be broken because every time we bring a debt to bear, Jesus pays it. In fact, in reality, He has already paid it. And God is fully satisfied with Jesus' payment. The only question left is, are we satisfied? Are you satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? You know, some Christians think they have to maintain the covenant themselves. And so they run around trying to stir up all kinds of works. They, they run around trying to be their own surety, their own guarantee that they're going to get to heaven. Well, the Bible tells us, stop being satisfied with your works, with your good deeds, with your church attendance, with your resolutions, with your baptism. God is satisfied with Jesus. He paid for all our debts. He is our surety. He is our guarantee. You say, well, Dan, how do we know that our guarantee is secure? Well, I've picked out six things in this passage that show us that Jesus is our sure guarantee. I've listed them in your bulletin. The first is His pledge in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath... What is not without an oath? Well, he's talking about what he mentioned in verses 18 and 19 about the bringing in of a better hope which replaces the old hope, which is the law. What he's saying is that the new covenant comes with an oath. The new covenant comes with a pledge. And then notice verse 21. For they indeed became priests without an oath. When it came to the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, God did not make an oath that they would serve forever. But when it came to Jesus, notice what he goes on to say in verse 21. But he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever. When it came to Jesus, God made an oath. Now, when did he make the oath? Well, this is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. We saw a similar thing in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 18 regarding God's promises to Abraham. He swore by himself in order to make that promise more secure. You see, God's Word is good enough by itself. But when He adds His oath, it's like He's underlining the promise, He's highlighting the promise, He's putting it in brackets with multiple exclamation points. And then if that isn't enough, notice what He also says in this verse, and He will not change His mind. 
God swore with an oath and he will not change his mind. Now you get the idea that God wants us to be absolutely sure about something. And what is it? That Jesus is a priest forever. What's the point? Verse 22. So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now this is the only time this word guarantee appears in the New Testament. And I think that's fitting because we only have one guarantee. And it's Jesus. You see, our guarantee is not in writing. Our guarantee is in person. And God's agreement with us, God's promises to us, do not just carry a lifetime guarantee. They carry an eternal guarantee because it says He is a priest forever. And that's the truth God wants us to rest on. And so He made it with an oath. And so the first thing that makes our guarantee of eternal salvation secure is that He made it with His pledge. Secondly, His permanence. Verses 23 and 24. Notice verse 23. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now, the Levitical priests had a problem. They kept dying. And that automatically disqualified them from being priests. And so he says there was a great number of them because they couldn't continue. They just kept dying and dying and dying. And then in contrast to that, look at verse 24. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. The Jewish historian Josephus says there were 83 high priests from Aaron until the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. If you lived under the Old Covenant, even when you got a high priest that you really liked, you weren't guaranteed that he was going to continue. I think back to times like when Eli was around. Eli was an okay high priest, but the people of his day had to be praying, God, keep Eli alive. Because if he died, he had two corrupt sons named Hophni and Phinehas that nobody wanted as their high priests. See, even when you found a high priest you liked, there was no guarantee he was going to continue. They all died. They were all replaced. But Jesus, it says, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. We have a high priest who is not going to die. We have a high priest who is not going to stop. We have a high priest who holds his priesthood permanently. And then the third thing that secures our guarantee is his perpetual petition in verse 25. And this is the key verse in this passage. Notice verse 25. Hence also... He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now that word intercession means prayer. What he's saying is that Jesus is perpetually praying for us and His perpetual prayer guarantees our salvation. Reader's Digest has a section where people write in humorous things that happen at work. A lady named Kay Gordon contributed this one. She said, confiding in a co-worker, I told her about a problem in our office and the fear that I might lose my job. She was concerned and said she would pray for me. I know she keeps a list of ten people she believes needs her prayers the most, so I asked her if she had room on her list for me. Oh yes, she replied. Three of the people I've been praying for just died. Well, usually when someone prays for us, we want better results than that. Verse 25 tells us that we have the best intercessor anyone could hope for. And what's the benefit of having Jesus perpetually praying for us? Well, look at the beginning of verse 25. Hence also, He is able to save forever. Now, I think it's important for us to understand the word save. I don't know if you realize it or not, but the word save is a radical term. 
You don't need to save someone who is doing pretty well. You don't need to save someone who could just use a little something extra to round out an otherwise happy life. You don't need to save someone who is fairly competent and has it all together. You see, to save someone, you don't just offer some advice or tips about a better way to live. To save someone, you don't just show them a model of how to live. Someone who needs salvation is lost. Someone who needs salvation is incapacitated. Someone who needs salvation is in immediate danger of perishing. Someone who needs salvation cannot save himself. He is without help and will not survive. And the Bible tells us that spiritually, every one of us needs to be saved. Now, what do we need to be saved from? Well, the Bible's answer to that is that we need to be saved from God's wrath and eternal judgment. It's not a real popular subject today, but the Bible's very clear about it. Jesus put it this way in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that it is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In Romans 5.9, Paul says, Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. In 1 Thessalonians 5.9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, either you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, or you will face God's wrath because of your sins. And then I want you to notice again in verse 25, it says, He is able to save. Now, a lot of people like to modify a phrase like that. And they like to make it read, He is able to do everything He can to save us, but it's really up to us. Let me tell you something. Jesus saves, and we don't help Him. Salvation is not a joint venture. It's not me and Jesus got our own thing going. It's only Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, We were dead in our transgressions and sins. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he uses a different analogy. He says, we were in spiritual darkness, blinded by the God of this world so that we could not see the light of the gospel. Let me tell you something. Listen carefully. We cannot help God in the matter of salvation any more than a dead man can contribute to his own resurrection. We cannot help God in the matter of salvation any more than a blind man can decide to see. In fact, the Bible tells us that in our fallen condition, we don't even desire to be saved. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says, there is none who seeks for God. We, we talk about seekers today. Really, there's nobody seeking God unless God is drawing them. In fact, the Bible tells us what we seek. The Bible tells us what we desire. Jesus said in John 3, 19, men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. To appreciate your salvation, you need to recognize how hopelessly and helplessly lost sinners really are. Apart from Christ, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 that sinners are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality to the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now, that's not a very pretty picture, but that is the biblical description of our condition before salvation, even if you were raised in a Christian home. 
You say, well, Dan, if, if that's our condition, then how does anybody get saved? Well, verse 25 tells us, Jesus is able to save. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, it follows up Paul's comment saying, we are dead in our sins. We are by nature children of wrath by saying this, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You see, salvation is not a matter of throwing a rope to a drowning man in a river who is able to grab the other end of the rope. Salvation is a matter of breathing life into a man who is already drowned, and he is lying at the bottom of the river. And who can do that? Only Jesus. And then I want you to also notice in verse 25, it says, He is able to save forever. That word forever can be translated completely. Some of your Bibles say He is able to save to the uttermost. Someone has said that He saves us from the guttermost to the uttermost. What He's telling us here is that our salvation is both quality, He saves us completely, and it is quantity, He saves us forever. And that phrase, to save, is actually in the present tense in the Greek, and it points to the fact that salvation is an ongoing process. We are saved totally the instant we trust in Jesus Christ, but there is also a present and a future tense to our salvation. The Bible tells us we have been saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin, and we will be saved from the presence of sin. And no one enters that process without completing it because Jesus is the one who saves completely. Jesus said in John 6.39, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That's a great verse. It tells us that God the Father has given each of us as a gift to the Son. And of those, how many will Jesus lose? No. We may go through doubts like Thomas. We may even go through denials like Peter. But Jesus is able to save us completely. He will lose none. And how does He do it? Look at the end of verse 25. It says, Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Our best insight into Jesus' prayers for us is John 17. John 17 is called the high priestly prayer by many people. It's Jesus praying to the Father on our behalf, the very thing He's doing in heaven right now. And you remember what His prayer request is for us? It tells us in verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking you to deliver them out of this world, I just want you to protect them in the context of this world. Remember when Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him? He also added this in Luke 22, 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I don't know about you, but it gives me a great amount of assurance to know that Jesus is praying for me. It's great to have you guys pray for me. I love that. I appreciate that. But Jesus is praying for me, and Jesus is praying for you. And even though we may stumble badly, just as Peter did, our salvation is guaranteed because we have a high priest at the right hand of the Father and He's continually praying for us. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 puts it this way. It says, When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate means a defense attorney. It's kind of like we have a Johnny Cochran. The only problem with Johnny Cochran is he just died recently. 
So we have Jesus Christ, our eternal attorney, who stands at the right hand of the Father. And every time you and I stumble, He represents us there on the basis of the cross of Calvary where He paid the price for that sin. You know, Perry was Perry's not here today, so I'll tell the story. Perry was telling me the other day that the motor on his boat blew up. And I think it was going to be $3,000 to replace the motor, and he was I was consoling him. And uh, he was saying, well, you know, it really wouldn't have mattered if I had a warranty because it was my fault. And I was thinking, you know, earthly warranties don't hold up when it's your fault. But the guarantee of our salvation is not voided if we fail to follow the owner's manual. Isn't that nice to know? Our guarantee is sure because of the perpetual prayers of our great high priest. And then fourthly, his purity. Verse 26 says, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. That word fitting means he fit the job description perfectly. He, he fit the qualifications of exactly what we needed for someone to save us. And how did he fit those qualifications perfectly? Well, he goes on to say that it's because of his purity. And he puts it in five phrases. He says, first of all, he is holy. The word holy means set apart. He is holy and set apart morally and that he is set apart from sin to God, but he's also set apart in his majesty because the word holy means to be a set apart from others. And Jesus is not only set apart from sin, he is set apart from us in that he is different and beyond and greater than us. And that's why Revelation 15.4 says of him, he alone is holy. And then secondly, it says he is innocent. Now we say that someone is innocent until proven guilty. Well, Jesus didn't even present a reasonable doubt. He is innocent in both actions and motives. Thirdly, he is undefiled. That is, he was free from any moral or spiritual blemish. Now, he may be using this word in contrast to the Levitical priests who were undefiled ceremonially and ritualistically, but really not inwardly. Or he may be using this word in reference to the sacrifices, because this is a word that was often used of the lamb that was sacrificed. And Jesus is not simply our high priest. He is also our sacrifice without blemish. And then fourthly, it says separated from sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus removed himself from sinners in some kind of monasterial sense, because the Bible tells us that Jesus was a friend of sinners. He kept himself separate from the sin, but he was very close to the sinners. And that, of course, again, is in contrast to the Levitical priests because they had to keep themselves away from anyone who would defile them ceremonially. But Jesus mixed with sinful people, and yet their defilement did not affect him. Jesus touched lepers. He touched the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He touched Gentiles. He even touched the dead. And rather than receiving their defilement, when he touched them, he transferred his purity and his power to them. And then fifthly, it says, he is exalted above the heavens. That's just a way of describing his resurrection, his ascension, and his glorification. And of course, that is the proof of his purity. You say, well, how does Jesus' purity guarantee our salvation? Well, look at verse 27. He does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. The high priests under the law had the same problem the people did. They were sinners. And so before they could represent the people, they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves for their sin, and then they could represent the people by offering sacrifices for theirs. You see, the high priests in the Old Covenant couldn't save anyone because, in fact, they needed to be saved. But Jesus is our surety 
And he is perfectly pure. And because of that, he could pay our debt. And then fifth thing that assures our guarantee is his personal sacrifice. Look at the end of verse 27. It says, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The Levitical high priest need a sacrifice for themselves. Jesus is the sacrifice. The Levitical high priest offers sacrifices, plural. Jesus offered himself what? Once for all. Now, this is the problem I have with the Catholic system. Because the Catholic system is the continual sacrifice of the Mass. That the bread and the cup become the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is a re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ over and over again. And what does this verse tell us? Jesus offered Himself once for all. Now, I'm not anti-Catholic. I'm just pro-truth. In fact, let me just balance that out by picking on Protestants. Because there are a whole lot of Protestants that don't understand this truth any better. There are a whole lot of Protestants who say you have to believe plus be baptized. Or in order to be saved, you have to go through confirmation classes. Well, those types of activities are actually re-sacrificing Christ as well because what they're really saying is Christ's death was not enough to save us. You see, the guarantee of our salvation is not found in re-sacrificing Jesus Christ. It's not found in adding something to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The guarantee of our salvation is that Jesus sacrificed Himself once for all. And then sixthly is His perfection in verse 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now notice the contrast he's making here. He says the law appoints men. The word of the oath, which is a reference to the new covenant, appoints a son. They just had to pick out men. We get the son. And then he goes on to say the Levitical high priests were weak. How were they weak? Well, at least two areas. Number one, they were sinners, so they had to keep offering continual sacrifices. Number two, they were mortal, and so their priesthood was temporary. In contrast to that, Jesus was not a sinner. He was perfect. And Jesus was not mortal. He is forever. And so He guarantees our salvation both perfectly and eternally. So what can we say? Because of Jesus' pledge, His performance, or His permanence, got another P in there, let me back up. Because of Jesus' pledge, permanence, perpetual petition, purity, personal sacrifice, and perfection, salvation is guaranteed. Now, having said all that, the question that remains is, who gets this guarantee? And the answer is back in verse 25. There is only one group of people who are given eternal and complete salvation, absolutely guaranteed. And those are the people who draw near to God through Him. Now I want you to notice two things. They draw near to God. It doesn't say they draw near to church. It doesn't say they draw near to religious duties or they draw near to rituals or they draw near to creeds. They draw near to God Himself. And secondly, they draw near to God through Him. Through Jesus. There is no other way. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You see, God has narrowed it down. You either draw near to Him through Christ, 
or you cannot draw near to him at all. That's pretty cut and dry. See, there is no such thing as middle ground when it comes to salvation. You are either saved through the person and work of Jesus Christ, or you are not saved. And if you are saved, it is eternally guaranteed. Have you ever gotten a promotional letter that made big promises and grandiose claims, and then you went down to the fine print and it said something like this, actual results may vary? Well, let me tell you something. God has no fine print. God promises that because Jesus is our superior high priest, salvation is guaranteed for all those who draw near to God through Him. And there is no fine print that says sinners must clean up their lives first. There is no fine print that says offer does not apply to really bad sinners. You see, Jesus promised in John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You see, he guarantees salvation for all eternity if you will come to him. We're going to close with a praise song. I'm going to ask the praise team to go ahead and come. And maybe you're sitting here today and and you can't say that your eternal salvation is guaranteed. I would invite you today to make the words to this praise song your prayer to the Lord and to realize what it cost Jesus Christ to provide your salvation and come in simple, trusting faith to Him. I'm going to ask Sandra, who was baptized, to come forward today as well, but I'm going to ask you to stand as we close, and if you would like someone to pray with you, you come forward as we sing as well. But let's make this our prayer, our time with the Lord as we draw near to Him this morning. We'll be seated for just a moment, and, and Sandra, if you would turn around, this is uh, Sandra Kay, who was baptized this morning. Um, I'm going to ask also Mike and Kathy Smith if they would arise and come forward. And then I'll let you guys lead Sandra out to the lobby. And uh, after we close in prayer, be sure and uh, go ahead, go ahead, keep going. Uh, after we close in prayer, I'll give you an opportunity to encourage Sandra in her decision today and, and say hello to Michael Kathy. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we confess that we don't really comprehend fully the magnitude of our sin. And so we don't fully comprehend what it costs to pay for it. But Lord, I pray that each one of us in this room can say today with confidence that He paid my ransom. And Lord, I thank You that You don't wish for us to be wondering or hoping or, or wishing for salvation, but that You want us to know you want us to have confidence, and I thank you for the promises in your word. I thank you that our guarantee is sure because our guarantee is Jesus. And Lord, we put all our trust in him, none in ourselves, and we rest in confidence in the only one that we can rest in, your eternal son and our great high priest. And we give him all the praise today in his worthy name. Amen.